How many of you, when you were a child, if you said the word hell, you would get in trouble? Anybody? Was, that was a cuss word in your family? Yeah, you'd wake up ne the next day, right? Mama would lay hands on you suddenly, right? You said, you said you do, you, it depends on the context, maybe, in which you, you said the word hell. Um, I was not allowed to say the word, the word hell. I wasn't allowed to say a lot of words when I was a kid. Um, and this will date me a little bit, but one way I got around the potty language of saying the word hell was with the old school calculators. You type 7734, anybody do that? Turn it upside down, and what did it say? Hell, all right, that's exactly what it said. So 7734, I would type 7734, turn that calculator upside down, and I could get, anyway. I actually tried it on my iPhone, but the four is that funky triangle four, it doesn't work anymore, so you don't really get it, but, but, it, but that's what we would do, hell, hell, hell. Hell is used a lot today. The word help, the worst thing you can say to somebody is go to hell. Some people say, um, this world is going to hell in a, sure. Someone cuts you off in traffic and you're like, WTH, right? You're just like frustrated. Or some people, some people, um, mamas, your child deliberately disobeys you. They look in your eye and they defy you. And you have one of those mama moments that every mama does. And it's a mama moment that you say to yourself, or maybe even if you're a little out of control to your child, oh, hell no, right? So that's the way hell is used. Some of y'all are like, pastor just said, yes, I did, right? Because that's life. That's the way we use hell. And it's, we can laugh a little bit about the subject because it's a very weighty subject. It's a very complicated, very scary idea. What I'd like to do today with, with God's word and uh, help us navigate an understanding of, of hell that's why I didn't put this out on Facebook saying, hey, guess what we're talking about on Sunday? Because a lot of people would stay home with a subject such as this. And so what I wanna do is I wanna answer this big question for you today. It is, why would a loving God send people to hell? Why would a loving God, we wanna talk about hell today. Why would a loving God send people to hell? If hell is indeed a real place, and if I were the devil, the captain of the evil army, what would be my strategy? Well, if I were the devil, I would try to convince everybody that hell is not a real place. Or at least I would try to convince you to not take it very seriously. Because if I could try to convince you that hell is not a real place, or not to take it very seriously, then what would it do? It would enable you to live however you wanted to live your life. You could justify all of the sins that you choose. You could reject Jesus without the fear of God. You could live a ridiculously self-centered life where you crave comfort, you reject sacrifice, you avoid persecution, and you love this world. That it, This world's not gonna last. And this is honestly what so many people in our culture are doing today. So let's talk about hell. Hell is a subject that's found throughout the entire Bible, but nobody talked about hell more than Jesus Christ. But that can be a little confusing, by the way, because he was also the most loving one that ever was, and yet he talked about hell. But when you really read what Jesus was doing when he was talking about hell, you have to look at who he was talking to and what he was talking about when he was focusing on the subject of hell. And you'll notice every single time Jesus was talking about hell, he was not trying to scare unbelievers from going to hell. That's not what he was trying to do. 
He was actually using hell to motivate people like us, spiritual people, to act more spiritual, to act more like God, to be closer to him. But, but it was motivating, it was a motivating factor for other people because Jesus didn't want people to go to hell. And so I wanna start in Matthew's Gospel, chapter five today. And if you've got your Bible, please open it up to verse number 29. I think this is kind of a, pardon me, I'm not making fun of God's word, but it's a little bit of a ridiculous metaphor that Jesus uses to catch our attention. And he says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, well, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into Hell, this is a metaphor. In other words, if something's gonna keep you from serving God, then get rid of it in your life. Whatever it is, gouge it out and throw it away because it's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, what does that mean for some of you? Well, if you're stuck in your sin of pornography, the thing that you might consider gouging out might very well be this. Did you know about 30 years ago, people lived without one of these? I know it's hard to believe. Get rid of it. I'm, I'm not telling you, get an app, get a cyber sitter on your phone. I'm telling you, it's better for you to get rid of it than it is to, to take, take a chance on finding yourself in hell one day because sin, it separates you from God. And over time, you look and you're like, how did I get this? Gouge it out, man. Make a decision in your life. You aren't gonna go to heaven because you're, you're attached to your mama's faith. Each one is personally responsible for their own spiritual condition. I'm not talking about guilt. I'm not talking about condemnation. I'm talking about God's grace and God's forgiveness, but I'm talking about living a life that is above reproach. Don't take a chance on going to the place we're talking about today. It's better for you to gouge it out because Jesus doesn't want anybody to go to hell. In fact, the word for hell used in Matthew chapter five is translated this Greek word, Gehenna. Now, I, Gehenna is, it refers to an actual place, a real place, so I've been to hell. Um, let me explain. Gehenna is a real place in the southwest uh, corner of the city of Jerusalem, known as the Valley of Ben Hinnom. It's a very interesting valley when you study this. It's, it's an actual place. So the southwest corner of Israel, of, of Jerusalem, it's way down in a valley and you've gotta take this windy road on the side of the hill to come up into the city of Jerusalem. And that valley up and hidden down below, it has so much history. Centuries before Jesus was born, there was an evil king named King Ahaz. And you might recall him from the book of Jeremiah. He worshiped a false god. And it doesn't necessarily matter the names that I'm gonna say, but the false god's name was Molech. And in worshiping this false god named Molech, this was one of the most horrific acts possible because the false god Molech was known for child sacrifices. In fact, you read about it in Jeremiah chapter seven, verse 30, 31, somewhere in there. It says they built the high places in Topheth uh, in the valley of Ben-Hinnon. This is Gehenna. This is that area on the southwest corner of Jerusalem. 
It's an actual place. So Jesus was using something that they would understand in their current culture to have some sort of frame of reference to how bad, how ugly, how horrible, how hot hell really is. And this, in this valley, Ben-Hanon, this Gehenna as it's known, that's where they would burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to a false god named Molech. They would burn them alive. Even today, a couple thousand years later or longer, you won't find any businesses, you won't find any homes in that valley. It's considered to be cursed, it's considered to be evil. It's a place that's been cut off from God according to what the culture believes. And so, so nobody would go there because of its horrible history. And because of the history, that place, Gehenna, the Valley of Ben-Anon, it became a garbage dump. This is what I saw when I was there many years ago. It's a garbage dump. And it would be a place where they would still throw their dead animals. Dead carcasses, dead animals would be disposed of in Gehenna. Human waste would be disposed of in Gehenna. Sewage would be dumped and disposed of in Gehenna. Bodies of executed criminals would be tossed into the valley of Ben-Hanon, into Gehenna. And, and it would all be burned. And you can imagine, even today, when you're winding up the road, the stench is horrific. It's, it's burning. It's, I can't even explain how bad it smells. And, and this, is, this is the smell from the smoldering fire that will never be quenched, that will never burn out. In fact, this valley, the Valley of Ben-Hanon, the Gehenna, is also known as the land of no more. The land of no more. No more beauty, no more laughter, not there. No more peace. Children, we're burned a lot. No more friendship, no more joy, no more hope, and no more chances. That's the Valley of Ben-Hanon, that's Gehenna. That's the land of no more. So when Jesus was talking about hell, he wasn't talking about a, a dungeon in the basement of heaven somewhere. It was actually much worse than that. It's a place that's cut off from everything good. Cut off from God's presence. In essence, if you're gonna define heaven and hell, you can define them very simply this way. Heaven is the presence of God and hell is the absence of the presence of God. It's, it's a horrific place without anything good where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's without the presence of God. It is the land of no more. So that raises the question, why hell? Why would, why would God create or allow a place called hell and I'm gonna show you two reasons from the scripture. By the way, guys, this isn't what I want to talk about. This isn't what I'd like to talk about. This is what I'm confident that the Lord wants us to look at and, and understand and appreciate, not to scare the hell out of you, but to inspire you to actually live this life of faith, to live this life of, of assurance. Number one, Hell exists for God to righteously punish Satan. I can give that a hand clap. Satan deserves to be punished 
for all the hell he's tried to put you through. Some of you have brought in here with you today. One day, the boot's gonna be put on his, his throat and it's gonna be turned. He's gonna be tossed into the burning lake of sulfur. One day, Satan deserves, it's a place of punishment for the prince of darkness. Satan, when we talk about him, the evil one, Beelzebub, Lucifer, right? Uh, the devil, he's not perched on your shoulder and God or an angel's on the other one. He's not the pitchfork and the, it's not that. It's not something simple that you can be like, it's, he's an evil, he's the embodiment of everything evil. Behind every addiction, there is Satan. Behind every abuse, there is Satan. Behind every fear, he tries to give us a spirit of fear, of pain, and of shame. He's called by the Bible the destroyer, the deceiver, the dark angel, the accuser of the brethren. He's the tempter. He's the wicked one. He's the thief. He is the father of all lies. He came on a mission to steal and to kill and to destroy you. Man, he wants to steal your joy. He wants to kill your faith. He wants to destroy your existence, destroy your soul, destroy your family. He wants to ruin your finances. He wants to obliterate your marriage and he wants to kill your kids. This is the father of lies. And hell is a place for God to righteously punishment the embodiment of all evil. One day he'll finally get what he deserves. The thought that you've had about ending your life that was birthed from Satan. The thought that you had about throwing in the towel, the thought that you had about taking that one out and whooping, that thought that you've had about telling your boss where to go, all of those things, that, that temptation that you've had, that lust that you've experienced, behind all of that is Satan. And one day he'll get one. Let me show you. Revelation. Let's go there. Come on. Revelation chapter 20. I want to show you just one verse, verse number 10. We could hang out here for a while. Check it out. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. Get this out. Get, check this out. They will be tormented day and night forever. And just, just to kind of drive it home and ever. That, that's why God has a place called hell. That sounds fair to me. When you're the embodiment of all evil, you should be punished. And that pumps me up. It's like the, the bad loses, good wins. And I'm on the good side of the game. But hold on. <laughs> the Bible talks about something called hamartia. Hamartia is the Greek word for sin, sin, sin. What does sin mean? Sin simply means missing the mark. You missed the mark. You know, it's the whole, oh, I missed the mark. You miss the mark. It means doing something wrong in the eyes of God, which defines all of us in the last like 15 minutes, right? Missing the mark. Our culture doesn't like to use the word sin very much. There's some pastor schools and training for, for uh, pastors that some, um, in my opinion, skewed 
theologians and, and educators will try to teach leaders not to talk about sin anymore because you know this current culture just gets repelled by that. How are you going to attract people if you talk about sin? Well, we are going to love people straight into hell is what we're going to do if we don't tell them the truth about what sin is and how it separates us from God. So we need to have the conversation. We just need to do it with love in our hearts, right? With concern, with concern for people. What we really want to do is, if we're truthful, is we would like to serve a God that just kind of gives a, you know, a little wink to our sins. You know, a little... I got you, it's okay. That's not the God that we serve. There is a standard. And the standard for us that God has established, we don't get a vote on this. God has established the standard, the standard is called holiness. And holiness is created um, as the standard that quite honestly is a standard we can't achieve. So it's impossible to achieve the standard. Why did God give us an impossible standard? Because he wanted us to know that we needed a savior. We needed somebody who could stand in the gap between our sinfulness and the holiness that he requires to bring us to a state called righteousness so that we can live above. Our righteousness is as filthy rags, but the righteousness of Christ is applied to us. That's why I live with resurrection power, and so do you. It is impossible for God to be holy without also being just. Wickedness and evil must be punished. There's another upper, Troy. Way to go. Make me feel good. So the first reason hell exists is for God to righteously punish Satan, but the second reason is hell exists for God to righteously punish evil. And that would be for those of us who have sinned, but people who are without Jesus. It's harsh. Frankly, it's painful, it's not fun, we don't like to talk about it, doesn't give us joy to talk about it, even as a church. But if we don't talk about the reality of hell, we will never appreciate the depth of God's goodness and his grace. God is good, and all the time. So let's look at what our good God gave us about the subject of hell. Here we go, Luke chapter 16. Go back there if you would please in your textbook. I I don't change anything in the Bible. Uh, In fact, it says in the end of the book of Revelation that if you add anything to this book or take anything away from this book, may the plagues of this book be added unto you. What? I'm not gonna add anything to the book or take anything away from the book. Except the topics, the, the titles to your little chapters, to your sections, those aren't anointed. Those were given to us by scholars that felt like this would be a good reference. Like for example, in Luke chapter 16, or in Luke chapter 16, beginning verse number 19, just above that, it might say in your Bible, the title of the section is The Rich Man and Lazarus, right? The Rich Man and Lazarus, that's what it's titled. I crossed it out. I don't like it because I think a better <laughs> because I think a better title to this would be a voice from hell. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple, 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 purple. You got to get this. This means this was a royalty, a man of royalty. This is a Prince Harry. I don't know. That's probably a bad example. But this is this is a because he's not. Is he royalty anymore? I don't know. No, he's not. So, well, there's another prince. What's his name? William. William. Bill. Okay, so this was a man who was dressed in purple, royalty. But when it says fine and fine linen, that means that one piece of fine linen was a year wages for the average laborer. What? This guy isn't just rich, he's filthy rich. Like you need to understand, we're talking about, in fact, I'll show you how rich he is. Let's keep going. And he lived in luxury every day. 
At his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus. This is not the same Lazarus. Lazarus come forth. This is a different Lazarus. So think of it as like, hey, Mike and Mike, right? There's two different people. So a beggar named Lazarus was covered with sores and boils, longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. And sometimes we think, well, he might be eating and, you know, he drops some crumbs on the floor. No, the, the, this, is, this is how rich this guy was. Um, the way that he would wash his hands before dinner is they would hand him a freshly baked slice of bread and he'd take the bread and rub it between his hands and he'd clean his hands with the bread. And, and that's the crumbs that would fall from the table, the nasty hand cleaning scraps. And, and Lazarus begged to eat that off the floor. This is how desperate Lazarus was and how rich. This man was washing his hands with that which was sustenance for somebody else to live. He's, he's filthy rich. Even the dogs came and licked Lazarus' sores. Whew. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him on Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, this is a, called Hades is a place of torment, which is where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And I would like to stop, stop right there. I want to give you four brief, very brief lessons from the other side. Four brief lessons from the other side, and these are gonna go very fast. Number one, I want you to see that the rich man was fully conscious, and he was fully aware. Fully conscious, he was fully aware. He still had his memory. He knew what he had done. He was hurting, and he was full of deep-seated regrets that will never go away. Imagine how you felt when you felt guilty in your life. The overwhelming guilt that you felt that finally you got resolution to or repentance from, uh, you got help for, and your guilt was washed away. The Lord helped you and people helped. That is no help in hell. He was conscious and he was aware. Number two, the rich man's eternity was irrevocably fixed. There are some scholars today, if you read, um, you might stumble across some that will say that hell is a place that is not permanent, but it will last for a thousand years and it will go on. And there's even people in here that we've had this conversation about. I have done as much as I know to do in my studies and I cannot find that to be something that is factual. But here's what I would say. If it is, hallelujah. But I would never wager our eternal existence on a theory because it says forever and ever. It's irrevocably fixed. 
The rich man, number three, knew that his suffering was just. And this is the one I would really like to hammer home. He knew his suffering was just. He knew it was fair. How do I know that? Because he complained about the pain, but he never complained about the injustice. He never said this isn't fair. He knew it was fair. See, the reality in hell is gonna, you can't hide it any longer. He, please help me. But never once did he say, this is wrong. Because he knew it wasn't wrong. He never said it was unfair. And then this rich guy in the middle of the pain, in the middle of the suffering, he knew that his brothers were eventually gonna end up there too, unless they made a different choice. Number four. The rich man begged and pleaded for someone to help his brothers know Jesus. Now, I don't know what's happening in hell today. I don't know what's happening in the chasm between. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Is this a metaphor? Is this literal? I don't know. But if the people in hell could speak today, they would never want anybody to join them there. Somebody needs to go tell them. Somebody tell my brothers about Jesus' grace, his forgiveness, his goodness, mercy, because Jesus doesn't want anybody to suffer like this. And I think the reality in hell is people will know that. So if I were the deceiver, let me say it again. If I were the deceiver, if I were the enemy, the, the devil, if I were Lucifer, if, if I were the destroyer, if I were the prince of darkness or the father of lies, what, I, what would I do? Well, there's no hell. Come on. Come on. It's not a literal place or it's not that big of a deal. I mean, wide is the road to heaven. Narrow is the road to hell, which is just the opposite of what scripture actually says. I, I try to get you, convince you not to take it very seriously because then you could live, church, you could live however you want to live. And unfortunately, that's what a lot of people do. And then you don't take your relationship with God very seriously. You can justify your sinfulness. You can reject Jesus. You can live with no fear whatsoever of God. You're like, I should fear God? Yes, you should fear God. He is a righteous and holy and just God. And yet he offers us love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. But he's still a righteous and holy and just God. Hallelujah. And he promises that one day evil will get what evil deserves. And he will not break his promise, not with you, not with your mama, not with your brothers, not with your own children. And it's not a threat. It's an opportunity for us to respond as a Christian, a Christ-centered person should. So we can't, if, if I was the devil, I'd encourage you to live a self-centered life. I'd encourage you to crave comfort and reject any kind of sacrifice. You want me to give? What? This is mine. If I was the devil, I'd try to get you to kind of avoid persecution. But Jesus says, take up your cross daily. I mean, that's a painful thing and follow me. If, if I were the devil, I just want you to love this world. Like that's all there is. Like so many people today do. So when Jesus was talking about hell, it wasn't to scare bad people into heaven. He was trying to use it to motivate those of us who are believers to act like believers on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and in the morning and the evening and at work and on the, on the roads to act like believers. Because a lot of people would say, well, it's just not fair that good people should go to hell. But as we said last week, in essence, there's really no good person on the planet. There's only been one good person that ever was and ever will be, and his name is Jesus Christ. So in the purest sense of things, we are not good. We have all 
every one of us have messed up. And I, I kind of think, you know what, why, are you, why do you always want to take my word for it? Let's look at the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, verse number 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Turn over to Romans chapter 5, verse number 8. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's, saved from God's wrath through him? In other words, while we were lying and stealing and lusting, Jesus came to die for us. When you repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, when you do that, he will certainly save you from God's condemnation. One more, Romans chapter eight, verse number one, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's who Jesus is. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Nobody. Who did he come for? He came for the sinners, not the righteous ones. He, he came for the sick, not the healthy. He came for those of us that are hurting and, and broken. And for those who fall short and fell far away from, from God. And for those who lied. He came for those who lusted and those who are stuck in the sin of pornography and those who are stuck in addiction. He came for those who are stuck in envy and greed. He came for those who are dead in their sins. That's, that's who Jesus Christ came for. Hey, check it out. I lied to you. One more verse. Second Peter chapter three, verse Number nine, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, instead he is patient with you. He's so patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is patient with you. He's been working on you. He has been, he's been waiting on you. He's loving you. He's been reaching out for you. God has been sending people your way your entire life. He's been drawing you by his spirit, through his goodness, and by his grace. Why is God so patient with me? I don't deserve it. Because our God doesn't want anybody to perish. But he wants everybody to come to repentance, to come to know Jesus. Why would a loving God send people to hell? Well, he sent Jesus to save us from hell. And it's very, very clear the devil came with a mission. Steal, kill, and destroy. <laughs> but God sent his only son, Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Prince of Peace, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Did you, did you get that? <laughs> when you have Jesus there are side effects. You know how your medicine thing says, well, there's side effects to this. When you, when you have Jesus, you should read the fine print. There are si the fine print. There's side effects to having Jesus, like love and joy and peace and the presence of God. When you have Jesus, the devil wants to take from you. He wants to steal from you, kill you and destroy you. But Jesus came to give you something better. He came to give you the presence of God. Give you life, guys. And that's why with everything in me, I was standing over here looking and watching our beautiful church. With everything inside of me, I want you to know God. Not, not know about God. You know, this, this, this thing here, um, I was reading 
this has been many years ago, but I guess it'd be like 20, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, whatever. Um, you and I have more information in the palm of our hands than the president of the United States, the president, the leader of the free world did 25 years ago. More information available, more answers available right here. And yet we're more lost as a culture and society than we've ever been before, right? It's, it's not about knowing about God. It's about knowing, knowing God, truly knowing Him, fully surrendering to Him. It's, it's full submission. It's trusting that Jesus is enough. In the midst of your pain, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough in the midst of your financial ruin, in the midst of your marital conflict, in the midst of your loneliness. Jesus is enough. His grace carries you. His presence sustains you. And it gives you this peace that you just can't explain. And even when you fall back into the same old sin, and we do that, don't we? Oh, we just suck sometimes, don't we? We're just like, I can't believe I did it again. I did it again. I thought that again, I said that again, I looked at that again, I acted that way again. When we fall back into those patterns, this is what we don't understand. His grace still covers us because there is therefore no condemnation. Now that doesn't mean there's not a ripple effect, right? Doesn't mean it's not gonna affect our lives, our quality of our life, and we don't have to make some things right and, and, and work on our behavior and our attitudes and our actions and get some help and repent and turn away from those things and get rid of stuff that's stumbling us. There's, there's stuff, but, but with God, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And church family, when we take this message seriously, the presence of God, or the absence of the presence of God, heaven or hell, it changes the way you live. It, it gives us an urgency that I have to share this antidote to the greatest pandemic that there ever was, and that's, and that's sin. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. What a heavy subject to talk about hell. Thank you, Lord, that you've led us and you've guided us, and I pray, God, that even now you would continue to prick our hearts, draw us nigh unto you. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I have two questions for you. The first question is this, and think really hard about this for just a moment. If you don't know Jesus, then hell is your chosen home. But he longs for you. He longs for you to choose him because he's already chosen you. And so the question I have is, will you give your heart to Jesus right now? If you're like, well, I'm pretty sure, then I'm going to tell you, I'm not sure at all. Either you know Jesus or you don't. And it's not a threat. It's an opportunity. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, it's just a personal decision between you and God. I got to wonder if there's somebody here or somebody online that would say, I'm putting my complete trust in Jesus Christ. I'm no longer going to be the same, but I will be new. And I accept him as my Lord and Savior. I repent of my sins. I turn away from that stuff. I need your help with this, God, but I give my complete life over to you. And if that's you, I'm going to count to three and I want you to courageously raise your hand. It's the last thing the devil wants you to do. One, two, three, put it up, put it up. Don't hesitate, just put it up. Put it, come on now, leave it up, leave it up. There's gotta be a 
another. I'm sure there's another. Uh, there's a lot, but there's got to be another. Come on now. Come on now. Don't hesitate. Praise the Lord. With your hands lifted, everybody keep your eyes closed for a moment. Those of you with your hands lifted, just pray this prayer after me. Dear God, please forgive me. Oh God, forgive me of all my sins. Come into my heart. Change my life. I need you, Jesus. I don't want to be the same. I want to be new. Give me your new life. I ask you to help me every day as I live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Put your hand down if you would, please. By the way, there's a huge interruption going on in heaven right now because about a half a dozen people or more have given their lives to Jesus and there's a party happening in heaven right now and I'm grateful for that. But my second question is very serious as well. And then we'll receive the elements of communion. If you find yourself being consumed by what's in front of you in this life, but forgetting what lasts forever, and you want the presence of God to help you live today in a way that would impact eternity. You're already a follower of Jesus, but you want the reality of eternity, of heaven and hell, to change how you live today. If that's you, and we get our priorities out of whack sometimes, don't we? If that's you, and you want God to help you reprioritize that this world is not my home, all these cares and burdens, they're real. It's hard, but there's a bigger purpose to my life. And if that's you and you want God to help you in this area, right now, put your hand up and say, God, that's me. God, help me to live with eternity, the reality of eternity as a big, big guiding factor in my life. Mighty God, bless us, strengthen us, help us, we pray. Thank you, Lord, for your favor. Thank you, God, that it rests upon your children. In Jesus' name, amen.